So let's go ahead and read chapter 7, and then we'll kind of go through it again. Again, this is the, the maturation process of the marriage. So chapter 7, verse 1. This is the beloved speaking. He says, and again, this is going to sound similar because he's already said some of these things in chapter 4, and he's said some of these things in chapter 6. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O prince's daughter! The curves of your thighs are like jewels. The work of the hands of a skillful workman. Your navel is a rounded goblet. It lacks no blended beverage. Your waist is a heap of wheat set about with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes like the pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath Ribbon. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon, which looks towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel, and the hair of your head is like purple. The king is held captive by your tresses. How fair and how pleasant you are, O love, with your delights. The stature of yours is like a palm tree, and your breasts like its clusters. I said, I will go up to the palm tree. I will take hold of its branches. Now let your breasts be like the clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and the roof of your mouth like the best wine. And she responds by saying, The wine goes down smoothly for my beloved moving gently the lips of sleepers. I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. Come, my beloved, let us go forth to the field. Let us lodge in the villages. Let us get, get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine has budded, whether the grape blossoms are open and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give off a fragrance, and at our gates are pleasant fruits, all manner, new and old, which I have laid up for you, my beloved. So again, very intimate, very detailed um, in how they're describing, you know, each other, what they want to do. Again, all, all good things, really wonderful things. Um, you know, and, and I obviously understand at this age, it, it can be an awkward thing, but I think we can get out of that awkwardness by understanding that God has created sexuality, and he's created these, these acts, these intimacies, with a, with a man and a woman as a husband and wife in the confines of a marriage as a good thing. It's, there's a reason why it's so bad when someone steps out of that, that, the confines of marriage, you know, when, when someone breaks that trust. There's, there's a reason why it's so bad, not just within the Christian community and the church, but even the world understands it because it's such an intimate and good and beautiful thing between two people that when you add another person or another element to it, it, it breaks so much intimacy. I mean, God makes us one flesh, not just in the spiritual, but really in, in the physical, you know? Um, and obviously, we've talked about how, you know, people make mistakes. There's many people in our congregation, maybe even your parents, I don't know, where they made the mistakes before they knew Jesus, you know? And, but what, what do you do from there? Is your life over? No. Because what does God do? God can redeem, right? But for those of us who know Christ at this moment, it's your responsibility to make the right choices, to stand in integrity, just like this man and this woman did in chapters 1, 2, and 3, when they were completely head over heels for each other, when they could have justified any type of action because they were insanely in love, Right? But no, what did they do? They submitted to God's word because God has a standard. And God's standard is not about being, you know, a gatekeeper for things and being hard 
and not wanting to have fun. No, he's, he's protecting us. He's giving us the, the instructions of how to live life the best way possible, the best way for you and the best way for us to glorify him. So we get into this section of chapter 7, and it's very, very intimate. Obviously, we see this as, as we read through this. I'm not, again, I'm not going to go into fine detail of everything that's transpiring and what they're wanting to do. Um, but again, we see at the very beginning, uh, Solomon, who's the beloved, really describing her in the same way he described her in chapter 4 on their wedding night, in the same way he describes her last chapter in chapter 6, where he's, he's again, he's complimenting her, right? Because what is that doing? That's building the trust. That's build, that's, it's putting in her mind that, you know, when he says he forgives me, he really does forgive me because he's treating me the same way that he did before I messed up, before I was selfish, right? And, and, and he's going above and beyond so that she feels that trust and that intimacy with her. And so to us, we're like, man, dude, how often are you going to say this? Well, sometimes women just need to keep hearing it. The wife needs to keep hearing it because it, that, that instills and builds the trust in knowing that my husband loves me and in, 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 what does he say here? Uh, delights in me in, in verse 6. So the third time he describes us here in this chapter, a little bit more detail, a little bit more intimate, uh, some new features about her body. Like, I don't know if you caught this, like her navel, right? Her belly button. It's like, okay, you, you're really calling out her belly button here? Um, <laughs> describing it as a rounded goblet. I'm like, all I could think of was Harry Potter. And uh, starts to compliment her waist, her thighs. And, and there's something to this, because I, I, I want to get into this a little bit. There's something to this because it shows, one, that they've worked out their conflict, right? They're, they're back again admiring each other. Everything's good. Like, you know when things aren't good between you and another person because it's not what it once was, right? There's some type of awkwardness. There's, there's jealousy. There's hurt. There's pain. So there's not a complete, you know, trust of, you know, laughing together again and joking and having fun or whatever it may be, right? There's something. And whether that's because you haven't truly forgiven or they haven't truly forgiven, both parties need to have fully forgiven and be forgiven to move on and to be back to where it once was. Um, and I'm, I'm not talking about like major things, okay? So the conflict is resolved. They're back again admiring one another. He's complimenting her feet. That's the very first thing he compliments here in, in verse 1. He says, how beautiful are your feet and sandals, which reminds us of the verse in Romans. What? What is it? How beautiful? How beautiful are the feet? No. Why are Jesus' feet beautiful? I'm just kidding. You both said it. Um, I'm actually asking because I forgot. But yeah, how beautiful are the feet? It's Romans 10. Romans 10, how beautiful are the feet of um, the preparation? The, or... Hey, why don't we look at it? It's in here. This is an open book test. I do know it's Romans 10. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Right? Well, why does he talk about, oh, why does he talk about her, their feet? Well, I mean, because they're the ones who are sent. Right? There's no correlation here. I just, it popped in my mind that they, uh, they express it the same way. So how beautiful are your feet, he says, 
um, in Sandals, O Prince's daughter. And so we're going to see this a couple times throughout this chapter where he kind of refers to her as nobility. But if you remember in chapter one, did she come from nobility? No. How do we know that? Because she was working where? Outside, in the sun, right? Her, her skin was tanned. And so those who were of nobility, you couldn't ever catch them working, right? They were always inside, away from the sun, so there was as pale as can be, right? Here she had a tan. She was working hard in the fields. So we know that she didn't come from, from a royal lineage, but the way he's describing her, her here is, oh, prince's daughter, right? Really implying that even though she came from a humble birth, it's, it's this high compliment of how he sees her, right? That in effect that she is a woman of nobility to him. So he goes on, he compliments her thighs. They're like jewels, uh, the work of the hands of a skillful workman. He goes on to compliment her navel, again, like a rounded goblet. Um, it lacks no blended beverage. Uh, your waist is a heap of wheat. Again, I don't recommend mimicking and using these lines. Um, but your waist, or I think another version says, talking about her belly, is a heap of wheat set about with lilies. So as you read this, you're like, okay, he's, he's delighting in all the parts of her body. Even the things that were like a belly button? Right? <laughs> like, okay. I mean, I, honestly, most belly buttons look the same, right? I mean, some people don't have belly buttons. It's true. But the point being this, listen, the point being this, he compliments every part, even the things that we would deem insignificant, right? Like the belly button has no function. Um, it's not something that, you know, I, I don't think people admire. But from a husband to a wife, admiring every part of her and delighting in every part. And I'm not trying to be weird. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to, to paint a picture. Because when we look at this, we see very, very uh, similar pictures and types of Jesus, in the church, right? We've talked about this, how Solomon is often a picture of Jesus. The bride, the Shulamite, is often a picture of the church, the church being us. So what I want to do is I kind of want to go through what does it mean, what is the, what is the church, what is the function of the church, what does it mean to be a member of the church, and really equating back to, okay, if we are a member of the church, it means we're a member of, of the body. We are a part of the body, okay? Not a part, like, in the sense of, like, we're joined together, but in the sense that you are a literal part. So you could be, you know, a finger, a belly button, the eye, whatever it may be, right? Um, obviously, we deem things greater than the other. Like, I could live without a belly button, right? I'd rather live without a belly button than a hand, wouldn't you? So in that sense, we would say, well, the hand is more significant or better than the belly button. But to Christ, he sees every part as valuable and delights in every part. That, that each one is beautiful and good and has a function to it. Okay, so all parts of her are a delight to him, speaking of Solomon, the same way as Christ with his body, the church. Every part or member is a delight to him. So what is the church? If somebody came up to you and asked you, what, what is the church? How would you define that? I think many of us would say it's 510 West Main Street, right? Or soon to be 935 Shotwell, 
it, many, many people understand it to be a church building. Obviously, that's not a biblical concept. That's not the biblical understanding of the church. The church, the very first church really didn't even have a building. They met in homes. So the word church, which is translated uh, from the Greek word ecclesia, it is defined as an assembly or called out ones. So the root meaning of a church is not a building, but of people. People, right? So we are the church. We understand this, right? We understand this. Now, this doesn't mean that, like, we go to the extreme and say church buildings aren't good. They're of no use. No, they are good in that they facilitate the role of God's people, but they don't fulfill it, right? So we can easily be the church without the building, but it is good to help us facilitate the things that God has called us to be as the church. Now, the church is also described in the New Testament as the body of Christ, right? Now, the body of Christ, who is the head of that? Christ, right? He's the head. Ephesians 1, it says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the body of Christ is who? It makes up all the believers in Jesus Christ from the day of Pentecost, which is the beginning of the church in Acts chapter 2, until Jesus returns, right? So biblically, we regard the church in two ways. You've got the universal church, who's everyone, from the beginning of Acts chapter 2 to however long the Lord tarries, to something more specific and detailed as the local church. And as we read through the New Testament, a lot of the, the verbiage of church is specific to the local church. Not all of it, but a lot of it. Because the local church is highly valuable and important. So the universal church, again, it consists of everyone everywhere who is born again. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen says, for, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. Now, the local church is described in Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where Paul says, An apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. So we see within Galatia that there were many churches. These were localized ministries that were scattered throughout that province, just like we have now. Now, in America, it's a lot more extreme and probably too extreme, to be honest, because just on one road, you can have 15 different churches. And that may, may not be totally, completely right in how God intended it. There's a church here in Clayton where there's two churches. They practically believe the same thing. Um, one owns the land. The other one rents from the people who own the land. They both have church at the same time on the same property in two different buildings that are probably about 15 feet apart. Kind of weird, huh? I, and I asked one of the, the members who used to go there, I was like, well, why, why don't you guys just have, why don't you just have church together? Why don't you just be church together, right? So I think and I'm, what I'm trying to imply is that America kind of takes a little too far. Um, but the localized church is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Again, this is where we see God doing what he has instructed for us to do as the body of Christ. So the local church is a primary center of fellowship, worship. This is what we do. This is why we come here right? We want to grow. We want to, we want to do what God has called us to do as a church, and I'll explain what that is in a minute. Um, so we evangelize. There's disciple-making. There's, there's ministry. Ministry basically means to serve, serving. The local church is where God's Word is taught and preached, right? We see this told in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 
when he gives, you know, the, the job to a, a pastor, a teacher, um, what their standard should be. The local church is where the ordinance of baptism and Lord's Supper or communion is, is, is practiced. The local church is where the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry happens. That's, what's, that's the role of the teacher, of the pastor, is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Why? According to the effective working by which every part does its share. So, you may say, I don't have a role here at church. I don't have a title, right? I'm not pastor so-and-so. I'm not elder so-and-so. I'm not deacon so-and-so. I'm not youth leader so-and-so. That's okay. It doesn't, it, it doesn't make any of us better than the other. It doesn't make you better than me. What it does is it just allows us to function and to have organized, an organized assembly so that it's not chaos. But it doesn't mean that everything falls on leadership or people with roles or titles. What this means in Ephesians chapter 4 is that every part, whether it be the navel or the hand, has a part to share, right? According to the effective working by which every part does its share. So you have a responsibility within this body to do something, okay? To do something. And you can't look at yourself as, I'm just the belly button. Because it has a use, okay? Not, maybe not in the physical. We can't translate that into, like, the physical. But it has a use. You're a part of the body, and God delights in it, meaning he sees you as valuable, right? Ephesians tells us that we are God's workmanship, okay? It's, it's something that is, that is beautiful to him, that he is, he is specific in creating us for a purpose. So you have a purpose, and you have a job. You have a responsibility. The local church is where we all come to, together uh, in faith, where we grow in the knowledge of the Son of God. All this is found in Ephesians chapter 4. This is where growth of the body for the edifying of itself and love happens. That is the purpose. It's so that we as the body can grow, right, to grow for the edifying of itself and love. We can grow because God wants to present us to himself as perfect and spotless to him. So there has to be a growth, a maturation within the body of Christ, within you individually, and it all happens by us working together and doing our share and doing our part. So God has given you the Holy Spirit to produce fruit, which every Christian is supposed to do and have. But he's also given us gifts. Right? He's given us spiritual gifts so that we can minister to one another, so that we can grow in the edifying of itself in love. Right? So for some of us, we have the gift of teaching. For some of us, we have the gift of helps. For some of us, we have the gift of um, discernment. Or we have the gift of this, this, and that. You can see more of that in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Do you know when the local church started? Was there a church in the Old Testament? No? I would agree. Not, not, in, not in the way that we see it. There was Israel, and I think we get pictures of an assembly of coming together ministering to one another and growing. But it was, it was exclusive in a sense at that point. And now that Christ has come and he has died on the cross, he's opened this up for all of us, to anyone who believes, right? He says, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, all have been made to drink into one spirit. 
For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. Right? So the body of Christ makes up many members. Each has its role and its purpose. And God loves each one. So don't ever, don't let the enemy, don't let him make you believe or succumb to the idea that you are lesser than God made you to be. Because I think that can happen sometimes. We can beat ourselves up. We can allow Satan to beat us up. And we can say, I have no purpose. Nobody likes me. This, that, whatever. I'm not, I'm not skilled. And listen, it's by God's grace that he gives us the gifts of the Spirit. It's not by anything of your own doing. It's not by a skill that you have. It's not by this or that. It's not by trying so hard. It's by his grace. It's, it's an unmerited favor that you did not deserve but he gives you something. You just have to figure out what that is and then start utilizing it. So the first church starts in Acts chapter 2, okay? Day of Pentecost. We see this uh, amazing um, act of the Holy Spirit where he starts to speak through Peter. Um, Peter starts to preach, and they ask him, "What, what can we do to be saved? He says, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the mission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 3,000 people responded that day. 3,000. And that formed the first church. And then it says, from that point on, as they continued in four essential things as the local church body. You know what those are? Acts 2.42. Oh, goodness. We need to know this. Four essential things that we as the church must be doing actively, proactively. Yes. Praying. Fellowship. Fellowship. No, there's two more. Turn me to Acts 2.42, because I, I am good at remembering things when I see it, rather than hearing it. So Acts 2.42, go to the um, New Testament, a couple books in. This is important for us to understand that that because listen, you're not going to be at this church your entire life. Let's just be honest. That, that's probably not going to happen. You guys may move. You may, I don't know. But it's important for us to understand what to look for in a church. Okay? Now, I don't want you to go to another church, obviously. But being realistic, we need to understand. Okay? So it says they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That just means the Bible. It's what they believed. It's what they taught. And everything we read in the New Testament is from the apostles. So they continued in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, which Emilio said, the breaking of bread, and prayer, I think is what, what Noah said. Right? So we've got staying in the word, fellowship, and this fellowship is not a matter of, hey, did you see the Super Bowl? Or, hey, you know, like, nice shoes. Right? No, like this was a deep intimacy talking about, you know, the Lord. In the Word of God. Um, nothing wrong with having the small talk, but sometimes we need to be more vulnerable and open and intimate with each other. So we've got the Word of God, the fellowship, breaking of bread, right? the, the communion aspect of it, and prayers. Right? That, that we are an active church of, of praying and praying, which obviously we, we did tonight. So they, as they do that, do you know what happens? Well, it says that in verse, I don't know what verse it is, 47. 
And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Thank you. God continued to add to the church. And this was an organic growth. This was a growth of those who didn't know Christ, came to know Christ, were born again. And not a growth of, hey, we left church so-and-so down the street, and now we're looking for a new church, and we just, now we're coming here. Again, not a bad thing, but that's not really true growth. True growth is organically done by, by discipleship and people coming to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So that's the original first church, and it has grown, it's expanded. We've seen Paul as, as an apostle, you know, uh, send out guys as to, to start churches, to lead churches. Um, that's how it started. And now we're here 2,000 years later, and we make up the body of Christ as Calvary Chapel Clayton. And I want to say specifically that you, if you're born again, you're a part of the body of Christ. And it's important that we understand that we don't forsake the assembly of the saints, that, that when we come together, we got to make sure that we come together, but also that it's not a matter of, hey, you know, this is another thing I've got to do. This is, again, and I've said this over and over again, church is different than your sports team, you know, STP, you know, anything else that you can mention. None of those things are bad. Partake in those. Have fun. Enjoy them. Grow in them. But those are things that, are, that you've added to yourself that it's just another thing on the calendar. With church, it's different. It's who you are. If you are born again, it is who you are by definition that you are a member of the body of Christ as the local church. Again, 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says, now you are the body of Christ and members individually. So Jesus was here 2,000 years ago, correct? Anybody see him? Let me answer it after. Anybody, nobody, none of us saw him, right? He, he was here. He was real. He lived for how many years? 33 years. Was crucified, so he died, right? But then three days later, what happened? He rose again. He reveals himself to, to 5,000 different people, or 500, sorry. 500 different people. All the witnesses saw him. He hung around for a minute, and then what did, what did he do? He, he, yeah, he went back to heaven. He ascended up back to heaven. And that was the last of anyone that's seen him here on earth. But at that, very at that very time that all that is transpiring, he creates the church. And he describes the church as the body of Christ. So do, do you see what's happening here is that Jesus literally leaves, but in a sense, he leaves a remnant of himself utilizing us as born-again believers as his body, that we are a picture of Jesus Christ. Obviously not in its perfection and its totality. We, we understand that. Jesus is who Jesus is. But we are a picture of Jesus now. We are the definition of his body, so that way the world can see Jesus through the church because we're the body of Christ. But we have to be functioning the way that Christ has called us to function. Right? And well, what is that? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16 says he gave himself, gave some, he, gave, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Again, why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, 
but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is head, who is the head of Christ, from whom the whole body joined in it together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Read that in your own time, because there's a lot to, to take in. Ephesians chapter 4. But essentially what it's saying is that we are to mature, we are to grow. There's a process to it. There's things that are going to happen as we mature and, and grow. We're, we're not going to be, you know, tossed to and fro, and fro, he says. That when we hear any type of doctrine, we're, we're going to understand what is biblical and what is not, what is false, what is true. We're going to grow. We're going to be effective. And ultimately, we're, we're going to be... Uh, this city set on a hill. We're going to be the light of the world, right? We are going to show the world Jesus Christ. And again, as this all happens, we are growing and we are maturing. Again, as individuals, between us and the Lord, but also as a church. I have more to say, but I think that's, that's, that's as much as we can get through. But again, going back to the idea that you are a member of the of the body of Christ. God delights in you. You have a purpose. There's intention in it. In the same way here that Solomon is being intentional um, with her and telling her, look, you know, even these things that we may see as insignificant, he delights in. He thinks that it is beautiful and is gorgeous and has purpose. And God has purpose for you. Again, Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You are his workmanship. You were created by the best creator ever for a reason. And don't let anyone or Satan or even your own self believe otherwise. So verse 3, let's wrap this up. There's not much left. He says, Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes like the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bath Ribbim. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon, which looks towards Damascus. And so as I read that, I was like, man, she must have a big nose. <laughs> I don't think that's the case. I don't think it's so much him talking about the size of her nose as it is really like the color or the, the, maybe the shape of it. Um, because it seems like that the Tower of Lebanon was not a literal tower, but a hill or mountains whose cliff, whose white cliffs looked out towards Damascus. So maybe it was more of a color than it was a size. It looks like she had a big schnoz. I don't know. Um, but hey, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And so maybe she had the biggest nose and he loved it. Um, but again, what, what this is doing, this is, it's, it's, it's further evidence that they've worked everything out right? The, just these, these mass amount of compliments that he enjoys looking at her again, that he's expressing delight in her, in noticing these features about her, saying these things to her. Um, he's a good husband. Verse 5, and your head crowns you like Mount Carmel, and the hair of your head is like purple. A king is held captive by your tresses. So again, going back to that, that, that royalty, where she's not royalty, but describing her as such, right? That, that, her hair that it's so striking and it's like it's purple speaking of royalty but not only that he says that royalty is held captive by you yourself right a king is held captive by your tresses solomon has such a way with words 
But I think he has such a good way of, of, of expressing these words because he's, he's intentional in how he's viewing his spouse. You know, you, sometimes we can be so, we're not as intentional as we should be to the point where sometimes we don't even notice like eye color, something so simple that we look at all the time, but unless I'm being intentional, I won't truly ever notice. So Solomon's being intentional. He's, he's noticing, you know, if she gets uh, a quarter of an inch cut off her hair, he's going to notice, right? And, you know, women, they do that, and they're like, hey, you notice anything different about me? And it's like, whoa, Solomon's going to notice. How fair and how pleasant you are, O love, with your delights. Again, delighting in uh, the beloved is delighting in the maiden and the Shulamite woman, his wife. Um, again, it just helps us to understand how much God delights in us, if we can just look at it that way. Isaiah 62.5 says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. I mean, is there a greater rejoice between a, two people? Well, it's much greater as God rejoices over us because he loves us and he delights in us. The enemy will tell you otherwise, but the truth of the matter is found in the truth, which is the word of God, where he says he rejoices over you and delights in you. Verse 7, The stature of yours is like a palm tree, is like a palm tree. Your breasts are like clusters. I said, I will go up to the palm tree. I will take hold of its branches. Let now your breasts be like the clusters of vine. The fragrance of your breath is like apples. And the roof of your mouth like the best wine. Again, we're, we're getting a lot more intimate and sexual in this section. He's speaking of touching her, indulging and kissing in her. Again, these are all good and proper things. Nothing to be weird about because it's between a husband and a wife. It's healthy. It's good. She responds in the second part of verse 9. The wine goes down smoothly for my beloved, moving gently the lips of sleepers. So here's her response to her, to him, in his previous statement. Um, again, he said how much he enjoyed their intimacy. And she answers as she recognizes and she agrees that she enjoys it as well. She says, I am my beloved's and his desire is towards me. Again, showing us that everything's good again. Right? That they've expressed their love towards one another. That she's convinced, without a shadow of doubt, that there's nothing in the back of her mind that says otherwise. That he delights in her. And she knows this. She believes this. He's done such a good job that she... They're, they're, I'm trying to make this as clear as possible. That they're good again. There's nothing... There's, there's, no, there's nothing from their conflict that is, that is there anymore. It's all been resolved. They delight in each other again. And she, again, she recognizes this. In verse 11, Come, my beloved, let us go forth to the field. Let us lodge in the villages. Let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine has budded, whether the grape blossoms are open and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. Um, the mandrakes give off a fragrance. And at our gates are pleasant fruits, all manner new and old, which I have laid up for you my beloved. So she closes it here, um, being obviously a little bit more intimate, um, detailed in things that she has planned for him, uh, a romantic trip that she wants to, to take him on out into the country to spend a night together. 
we see the intimacy here of what she wants to do at the end of verse 12, where she wants to give him uh, her love. Um, and one thing that, that's different from the previous chapters is that he went off by himself one evening, and she's like, I'm, I'm not going to let that happen again. Not to the extent of like, this woman is, is completely controlling this man, and he can't ever go golfing with his friends. Okay, that's not what's happening here. But she's being intentional that they do this together. That there's things that you, have to, that you should do as a husband and as a wife together. So they stay together, they go together. In verse 13, we see the mandrakes. Uh, this is a fruit that, I believe it was a fruit. Um, but it was, it was often spoken of that it had this, um, it gave this increase of desire or fertility. And she says she's saved this for such an occasion. Basically, I think one thing we can see from this is that there was planning involved for this romance, right? There was forethought, there was planning, there was intentionality, and that's important to have because it shows how, how highly you value the other person, right? When, when you're intentional in doing things and you give time, you give purpose, it shows that you value the other person, right? Because when you don't care, you don't do these things. So she was intentional in doing th- these things, again, bringing back the, the resolution to all of it. And they're growing, they're maturing as a couple. It's, it's awesome 